Hey there, it's Kathy. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to History of the 90s early and ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. If you were a kid in the 90s, there's a pretty good chance that music was a soundtrack to your childhood. You probably also learned your first Swahili phrase, Hakuna Matata. The original Lion King was released in 1994, and it was the highest-grossing movie worldwide, making nearly a billion dollars and beating out other classics released that year, including Forrest Gump and Speed. So how did a movie that the studio never really believed in, that overcame incredible adversity many times over, go on to become a worldwide cultural phenomenon, a record-setting animated movie, a billion-dollar musical. And now it's being introduced to a new generation through a live-action remake. I'm Kathy Kinzora, and this is the History of the 90s, a podcast about a decade that changed the world. On this episode, the story of the ultimate underdog, or I guess maybe undercat? This is the little-known story of The Lion King. High above the English Channel, on a flight from London to Paris in 1988, Disney bosses Roy Disney and Jeffrey Katzenberg were chatting with producer Peter Schneider. They were on their way to the premiere for the animated film Oliver and Company. As they chatted, they threw around some ideas for another animated film when someone suggested a coming-of-age tale set in Africa with lions. By the fall of 1988, a treatment for the film had been submitted to the studio. It was originally called King of the Jungle, but when everybody realized that lions actually live in the savanna and not the jungle, the name was changed to The Lion King. This was all part of the Disney Renaissance. After years of taking hits at the box office, Disney decided to return to making musical animated films. But it wasn't like the old-fashioned musicals. These new films would be more like Broadway productions. Between 1989 and 1992, they released The Little Mermaid, Beauty and the Beast, and Aladdin. All of them massive hits at the box office. Things were going well. It seemed Disney was back on track. But the head of Disney Animation, Jeffrey Katzenberg, said it was time to up the ante. Katzenberg decided that Disney should produce one animated feature per year. 
Although Walt Disney had similar intentions for his animated features during the 40s, this had never been done before. So to keep up with this new aggressive release schedule, Disney would have to make two movies at once. That meant Lion King went into production at the same time as Pocahontas. Lion King was scheduled to come out first. It was really just going to be a filler to tie people over until Pocahontas was released, which was the studio's real number one pick. There were tons of signs it was the favorite. Pocahontas had a bigger budget, $55 million. That was $10 million more than The Lion King. Disney hired Mike Gabriel to direct Pocahontas. He'd already co-directed the popular Disney film Rescuers Down Under. Meantime, for Lion King, Disney hired two first-timers, Roger Allers and Rob Minkoff. Both of these guys were well-respected for sure, but they were brand new in the director's chair. Then Disney assigned Glenn Keane to be in charge of animating Pocahontas. He was Disney's best animator at the time and had been in charge of animation for Ariel, The Beast, and Aladdin. Everyone immediately thought, well, if Keane is on Pocahontas, that must mean it's more important than Lion King. So Pocahontas had more money, a better director, and the number one animator. Because of all of that, most of Disney's animators wanted to work on it. Then there was also the issue of the Lion King story. You see, this was the first time that Disney made an animated movie musical based on a completely original screenplay. It was untested. No one knew if people would respond to a story about talking lions. Pocahontas, on the other hand, was based on an incredible true American story, one that people were already familiar with. It was described as West Side Story meets Romeo and Juliet meets Dances with Wolves, while Lion King was, well, it was just a weird creative experiment. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. Legend has it that animators were invited to a wine and cheese party where artwork from Lion King and Pocahontas were on display. As they sipped their drinks, they looked at sketches of Simba and Pocahontas. They had to decide which project they wanted to work on. The most experienced animators picked Pocahontas. They wanted to be attached to a guaranteed hit. The less experienced animators were left to work on The Lion King, an untested, unknown story of a talking lion cub that would most likely end up being a dud. There was one exception. Andreas Deja. You may not recognize his name, but you definitely recognize his work. Who is beautiful as me. Gaston. So I'm making plans to woo and marry Belle. Jafar. Just where did you say you were from? And of course, Scar. Why, if it isn't my big brother descending from on high to mingle with the commoners. 
Deja signed on to Lion King because of his love of the 1967 Disney film, The Jungle Book. He didn't care that Lion King was the underdog. Most of the animators on Lion King were part of a new, younger generation of animators. And this really opened up an opportunity for them to prove themselves. They were stoked to work on Lion King, and the split of animators into a Team A on Pocahontas and Team B on Lion King set the stage for a major rivalry. The rivalry intensified when Jeffrey Katzenberg assembled a breakfast meeting of animation staff from both movies. In an interview with Refinery29, one of the animators, Tom Bancroft, said that Katzenberg told the crowd that Pocahontas was going to be a home run, while Lion King would just be a base hit. Disney wasn't even sure if Lion King would be a success. Katzenberg told the directors he'd just be happy if it made $50 million. His comments didn't sit well with the Lion King team. They were mad, and rightly so. From that day forward, they had something to prove. That chip on their shoulder, well, it drove them through a myriad of challenges as they worked to create an unforgettable film. Before animators could get to work, they needed a story. And honestly, well, The Lion King, it struggled a bit. At one point, it didn't even have music. And instead, it was going to be more like an animated National Geographic special. Can you imagine a whole lot of David Attenborough instead of a whole lot of Elton John's music? In fact, in earlier drafts of the script, Scar was not Mufasa's brother. He was just another lion with his own pride who wanted what Mufasa had, and it wasn't until much later that someone suggested that, hey, maybe Scar and Mufasa should be related. That's when writers realized that having them related actually gave the story certain parallels to Shakespeare's Hamlet, so they decided to run with it. Those elements included a prince, a murderous uncle, close male friendships, and exile, just to name a few. Writers even thought of going so far as to have Scar say, good night, sweet prince, to Mufasa, before he launches his brother off the cliffside to his death. But instead, they went with a much more powerful and truly villainous line. Brother, help me! Long live the king. For many of the movie's young viewers, it was the first time they had seen an impactful and powerful death on screen. That was made even worse by Simba's simple and traumatic, you gotta get up. I'm sorry. I'm sorry if you're crying right now thinking about it, so I'm going to give you a minute. Now, if you think that somewhere in some happier alternative universe that Simba grows up with his father by his side, you're wrong. Mufasa was always going to die because for the Lion King filmmakers, it was always going to be Simba's rite of passage into adulthood. Over the course of production, many things changed, as they do when making any movie. Songs were swapped, jokes were changed, but one thing always stayed the same, Mufasa's death. His death and the circumstances surrounding it were never altered. It was always going to be a stampede. And children in the 90s were always going to grow up a little bit hesitant of wildebeest. 
the story they landed on is a pretty complex one. It's an emotional coming-of-age story filled with love and redemption. It's about family conflict and the responsibility of following in your father's footsteps, accepting the circle of life. Once the story was finalized, the B-team animators on Lion King worked their butts off to get the drawings right. On a number of occasions, they actually brought lions into Disney Studios so that they could watch them walk around and play with each other. Wildlife expert Jim Fowler paraded adult lions and lion cubs around a room while dozens of animators sat with pencil and pad and sketched the animals every move. They did the same with hornbills so they could learn to sketch the bluebird named Zazu, who was Mufasa's uptight butler. Like most animated films, the animators worked 60 to 80 hours a week on The Lion King. It was hard work. And then things got a whole lot harder. This is a magnitude 6.6 earthquake. It was centered in the northern San Fernando Valley area. They're still trying to ascertain the exact epicenter. They've been in contact with the National Earthquake Center in Golden, Colorado. And the 6.6 number is what both agencies have agreed on. At 4.30 a.m. on January 17th, 1994, the San Fernando Valley, the headquarters for the Lion King team, was rocked by a 6.7 magnitude earthquake. The earth shook for about 10 to 20 seconds. The big thing is do not panic. I don't know about you, but I felt a real strong jolt for about 15 seconds, but it was a strong jolt unlike any I've ever felt. Two massive aftershocks followed. Both were magnitude 6.0. This is a rather strong aftershock that we are feeling right now at 526. You're looking at a live picture. And my goodness, that one certainly came through strongly. The quake was devastating. Almost 60 people died and over 8,000 were injured. In addition, property damage was estimated to be 13 to $50 billion, making it one of the most costliest natural disasters in U.S. history. Buildings collapsed and highways crumbled. And that meant that no one on the Lion King animation team could get to the studio to work. See, the film's release date was fast approaching and deadlines had to be met. This was 1994, which means the internet was in its infancy. There was no Google Docs and telecommuting wasn't a thing. Unrelenting, the tenacious animators came up with a plan. To prove Katzenberg wrong, to prove what they were working on was a winner, they were going to finish this film no matter what. So the Lion King animators did like Walt Disney in 1923, and they set up temporary studios in their garages and homes and completed the film on time. They pushed through and got it done. Setting the scene on the Pride Lands and the sense of harmony among the species was absolutely imperative. So that's where creators focused. That famous opening scene, the circle of life. Once complete, they screened it for Mike Eisner, who was the head of Disney at the time. When the screening ended, Eisner informed the creative team that they had messed up big time. They were confused. How was that even possible? Eisner turned to the team and he said, the problem was, now the rest of the movie had to be as good as the opening. He actually loved it. Now the pressure for the B-team was on. And that scene, 
Well, that scene, it became the trailer for the film. It began with red text on a black background. Next summer, Walt Disney Pictures will present its newest animated feature. What follows is the opening song that begins the story. And then they ran the opening, Circle of Life scene, in its entirety. It doesn't seem that crazy, right? But think about it. When was the last time you saw that happen? It was the first time Disney showed just one scene. The whole trailer was just one scene from a movie, and there wasn't even any dialogue in it. Normally, trailers include obviously a bunch of different clips with lots of dialogue to help explain what the movie is all about, but not this one. At the end of the Circle of Life scene, that simple black on red font returned. It said, to be continued, June 1994. Go back and watch it now and you'll see exactly what I mean. It is still just as powerful. It was impossible to watch that trailer and not get excited. It promised something new, bold, and highly emotional. On June 24th, 1994, when the movie opened, it became an instant classic and a runaway success. Both the audience and the critics loved it. It was the highest grossing film of 1994, and it currently remains the 35th highest grossing film of all time. And it is the highest grossing hand-drawn animated film in history. Here's what's crazy. The Lion King's success, it isn't just from the box office. Prior to Lion King, other films had bigger box office successes, but none could match the multimedia marketing muscle of The Lion King. Lion King-related merchandise generated a billion dollars in total sales in 1994 alone. And it's estimated it's made $13.8 billion in total since then. If you think Frozen merch is everywhere, you have no idea how big Lion King was. As Simba ruled the movie's Pride Lands, the merchandising and licensing team was the roar heard around the world. In nearly every toy and department store, and in most homes with school-aged children, the Lion King ruled. Simba and company were everywhere. Everything from clothes, candy, toys, and games, to sleeping bags, lunch boxes, and stuffed animals. Lion King merch was such an instant hit, mostly because of the main character. When that trailer for the movie dropped, everyone immediately fell in love with that huggable and adorable lion cub. There was so much hype around the movie that Lion King merchandise started selling months before the movie even opened. Toys R Us started stocking over 200 Lion King items, like stuffed toys, play sets, and collectibles, at the beginning of April. The movie wasn't set to even open until June 24th. But buried deep in the glowing reviews were some criticisms about the movie that have continued to bubble under the surface until this day. So let's take a look at some of those. First, there were the rumors of plagiarism. As I mentioned earlier, Disney promoted Lion King as their first big original animated feature. It wasn't a retelling of a fairy tale or previously known story. And while the film seemed to take a lot of inspiration from Hamlet, or even maybe Moses from the Bible, its originality was widely praised by critics and audiences. 
but not everyone was impressed. After the movie was released, many were shocked by its similarities to a Japanese-created American TV show called Kimba the White Lion. Your father was a great and noble lion. Will you always try to prove yourself worthy of him, Kimba? Yes. Kimba, huh? I like it. Now I want you to leave the ship, my son. You must find your way back to the jungle, for that is your home. I will, Mama. That cartoon about African wildlife began airing in the 1960s, and it was based off the Japanese manga comic called Jungle Emperor, which was created by the legendary godfather of manga, Osama Tezuka. The similarities between the two are pretty undeniable. While Simba has Zazu, a hornbill, who desperately tries to keep him out of trouble, Kimba also has a bird sidekick named Polly Parrot. The villain in Kimba is Claw, and he's nearly identical to Simba's menacing Uncle Scar. There's even a double for the wise baboon Rafiki, only in Kimba, he's called Daniel Baboon. Finally, both franchises use the death of a parent as a central theme. Disney has flatly denied any connection to Kimba the White Lion. Lion King co-director Rob Minkoff told the Los Angeles Times that he had no knowledge of the 1960s cartoon or the manga comic it was inspired by. Minkoff did work as an animator in Japan in the 80s when the manga comic Jungle Emperor was still hugely popular, but there's no proof that he had any knowledge of it at the time. Roger Allers, the film's other co-director, said that he could certainly understand why Kimba creators would be angry if they felt their ideas had been stolen. He said if he was inspired by Kimba, he would certainly acknowledge that inspiration. Despite Disney's denials, the Kimba controversy led to petitions and protests from animators and fans who felt that Disney should officially acknowledge Tezuka and Kimba. The kerfuffle was even parodied in a 1995 episode of The Simpsons. The lion Mufasa appears in a cloud with a message for Lisa. You must avenge my death, Kimba. I mean, Simba. And actor Matthew Broderick, who was the voice of adult Simba, admitted he was initially confused about the role. In a 1994 interview, he said when he was first hired for the job, he thought they meant Kimba the White Lion because he had watched the cartoon as a kid. For what it's worth, Osama Tezuka didn't sue Lion King. Tezuka died in 1989, and Tezuka Productions, which controls the rights to his works, told the New York Times that Tezuka was an avid Disney fan, and he would have been flattered if his work inspired The Lion King. Okay, let's face it, any film of this size is bound to draw some controversy. And when you produce a film with the magnitude and impact of The Lion King, people will scrutinize the film and its creators even more. And you can't talk about Lion King controversies without bringing up the hyenas. Remember Shenzi, Bonsai, and Ed? Scar's comical henchmen? Hey, shut up! Will you knock it off? Well, he started it. Look at you guys. No wonder we're dangling at the bottom of the food chain. 
They're involved in the second and third bit of criticism. Criticism that, believe it or not, came from the world of science, more specifically, zoologists. When the movie was in production, a team of Disney animators spent several days observing and sketching captive spotted hyenas. They lived at the Field Station for Behavioral Research, run by Dr. Lawrence Frank and Stephen Glickman from Berkeley University. The scientists asked the animators to make sure that the hyenas in the film were portrayed positively in the movie. They felt hyenas had unfairly gotten a bit of a bad rap in society as evil, mangy-looking scavengers. They argued that hyenas were actually intelligent, strong, beautiful creatures. When the movie came out, Shenzi, Banzai, and Ed, well, they were portrayed as idiotic, mangy villains who triggered the wildebeest stampede that killed Mufasa. The Berkeley scientists were outraged at what they saw. They called for a boycott of the Lion King as a way to preserve hyenas in the wild. In an academic paper called The Spotted Hyena from Aristotle to the Lion King, Reputation is Everything, Glickman wrote about how Lion King's portrayal of Shenzi, Banzai, and Ed could harm the general population's understanding and interest in hyenas. They called for a boycott of the film to help conserve the animals in the wild. The hyena's stupidity wasn't the only controversy surrounding the animals. A bigger issue came from the hit song, Be Prepared. In a July 2014 Business Insider article, Frank Pallotta wrote, What most people don't realize is that the Lion King's animators based much of the scene on a 1935 Nazi propaganda film titled Triumph of the Will that documents 1934 Nazi Germany. It's clear from your vacant expression The lights are not all on upstairs As Scar sings the song, he sits high atop a cliff, looking down at an army of hyenas who goosed up in perfect formation. That probably went over your head when you were a kid, but take a look now. It's pretty wild. If Nazi propaganda wasn't enough, there's the argument made by critics, including Harvard Medical School psychologist Carolyn Neuberger, on the racial insensitivities of The Lion King. Now, this might come to you as a surprise, And you might think that it's conjecture, but remember the voices of the characters? Specifically, where they sound like they're from. In the book, Film, Politics, and Education, Cinematic Pedagogy Across the Disciplines, Ching Fang Sun argues that the Lion King's morality reflects an ideology that benefits the ruling elite while disempowering the subordinates. Mufasa and Simba? Well, they sound American, right? Zazu and Scar? Well, they're clearly British and very posh at that. In fact, almost every character sounds American or British, with a notable exception. The troublesome hyenas. The hyenas were the villainous henchmen of the movie, and so Ching Feng Sun argued that to make them sound evil, they went with ethnically Hispanic voices or accents like they were from urban city centers. The voices of the hyenas were played by Cheech Marin and Whoopi Goldberg, both non-white actors. You could argue against it by pointing out that Scar was evil and sounded British, but that just meant he got to be in charge of all the lesser ethnic villains. In fact, the movie goes out of its way to show that British Scar is intelligent and cunning, while the hyenas are savage and stupid. 
Now, this wasn't the first time that a Disney movie has seen this type of criticism. In fact, with today's lens, some of the ethnically defined characters wouldn't be accepted by society. And Disney agrees. The Black Crow in the 1941 film Dumbo, named Jim Crow, and the studio's controversial 1946 film Song of the South, will not have a home on the soon-to-be-released streaming platform Disney+. Speaking about these films in 2011, Disney chief executive Bob Iger said the films wouldn't necessarily sit right or feel right to a number of people today. And there wasn't a business case for it either. To be perfectly clear, when it comes to The Lion King, Disney went to great efforts to pay homage to the cultures of Africa when making the film. The soundtrack was filled with percussive sounds and vocal harmonies, along with five different languages from Africa, including Zulu and Swahili. A crew of animators and art directors also traveled to the Serengeti Plain in East Africa to research the landscape, art, and culture. They wanted to make sure they captured the look and feel of Africa's beauty and natural color palette. The result was beautiful, hand-drawn scenes of Tanzania in gorgeous gold, green, and yellow hues. Not all of The Lion King was hand-drawn. Some of the movie's important scenes were accomplished thanks to groundbreaking CGI technology. There's one scene in particular that's especially amazing. I'm so sorry to bring up the wildebeest again, but remember when that entire herd came barreling through the gorge towards Simba and Mufasa? It was like a waterfall of wildebeest. That scene would have been nearly impossible to complete by hand, so animators turned to a fairly new technology at the time to help them out. Using computer-generated imagery, or CGI, animators were able to replicate the animals from all different angles. The technology was so new that they had to create a brand new program that would allow them to control the herds of animals so they wouldn't bump into each other. This was cutting edge stuff and a very impressive feat for animators. It took five specially trained animators and technicians three years to complete. That's right, it took three years to complete one two and a half minute sequence. But it wasn't just the visuals that set Lion King apart. It was also the music. Hakuna Matata, what a wonderful phrase. Hakuna Matata, ain't no passing craze. It means no worries for the rest of your days. The fan favorite and Oscar-nominated song was written by Elton John and Tim Rice. It was playfully sung by Timon and Pumbaa in the movie portrayed by Broadway veterans Nathan Lane and Ernie Sabella. It's a key moment in the movie. We literally see Simba become an adult as the meerkat and warthog give a young mourning Simba life advice to help him put the past behind him and live carefree. It's their philosophy, Hakuna Matata. Akuna Matata is Swahili and roughly translates to no worries, no problems. The Disney crew who traveled to Africa heard their tour guide use this phrase and suggested it be worked into the movie somehow. After Lion King, the Swahili saying was known and used around the world. It still is. The same year the original Lion King was released, 
Disney trademarked the phrase Hakuna Matata. Now, you might have heard that in 2018, an activist from Zimbabwe started an online petition calling on Disney to relinquish the trademark, which he said was another example of Africa being exploited. He compared it to colonialism. The petition gained some traction and has received about 200,000 signatures at the time that we recorded this. But to be fair, the Disney trademark only applies to the use of Akuna Matata on t-shirts that also make reference to The Lion King. And it doesn't prevent other people from using the phrase. There is no denying the roar of The Lion King is mighty. The live-action film released this year has big paw prints to fill. As you watch what film critics are calling a landmark visual experience with a very diverse cast, which includes no other than Beyonce and Donald Glover, know that there are major changes to some of the characters, including the hyenas. Florence Kasumba, Eric Andre, and Keegan-Michael Key will play the three spotted hyenas who are Scar's henchmen. In a June 14, 2019 article in Empire magazine, director John Favreau mentions that the hyenas' characterizations were heavily altered from the original film. Favreau felt that they had to change a lot to fit the remake's realistic style, stating that a lot of the stuff in the original film was very stylized. Other changes you'll find will be in the music. In an Entertainment Weekly article from April 25, 2019, Favreau earmarked the film's music as its other major arena ripe for renewal. With all five songs from the 1994 film featured again, including Be Prepared and I Just Can't Wait to Be King, he hoped to spark collaborative magic by reuniting the original music team of Zimmer, John, Rice, and arranger Lebo M with Childish Gambino and Beyonce. Each iteration of The Lion King seems to bring its own spin to the music while still feeling related to what we all connect to as The Lion King. Favreau said having Donald Glover and Beyonce involved and not trying to create new songs but trying to build on what people remember and love about the old ones has been really fun and formative. 25 years later and Lion King is poised to rule the world again. The legacy of Pride Rock is undeniable. The Broadway musical that opened three years after the original film was released is the biggest box office hit of any work in any medium of all time. The little movie that could, the one with the B team, that wasn't even supposed to be as successful as Pocahontas, continues to be as relevant today as it was in 1994. Thanks for joining me on this journey through the Pride Lands. If you haven't already, make sure to subscribe so you never miss an episode. While you're there, don't forget to rate and review us. It helps spread the word and get more people to find the podcast. We're available for free at Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and everywhere else you get your streaming audio. You can also listen at CuriousCast.ca. Be sure to check out the show notes for more information about what you heard today and links to all our guests. If you want to reach out to me, you can find me on Twitter at 1990s History, on Facebook, and you can always email me at 90s at CuriousCast.ca. That's 90s at CuriousCast.ca. 
This show is hosted and co-written by me, Kathy Kinzora, and Dila Velasquez, our producer. Sound design and final production is by Rob Johnston. See you next time for more history of the 90s.